This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Oz Guinness. So he is a prolific author, speaker, and social critic. He's also the senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and the founder of Trinity Forum. So he has either authored himself or edited, been a part of over three dozen books at this point. It's like 30, I can't remember, I counted them up earlier, but he's got books like The Call, Fool's Talk, a Free People's Suicide, Signals of Transcendence. That's actually the book, his latest book that I just read here. Um, the guy's just written so much and done so much public speaking and so many different things. But the interesting thing about him is I didn't even know this until I was uh, preparing for this interview and researching. He is the great, great, great grandson of the renowned Irish brewer, Arthur Guinness. And so we got to talk a little bit about Guinness beer and kind of his whole connection with the family and all that kind of stuff. But the guy's just led a really, really interesting life. He was actually born in China to Christian missionaries during World War II. And he actually witnessed firsthand the climax of the Chinese revolution in 1949 and the rape of Nanking and, and different things like that. Just unbelievable brutality. But he moved to the United States in the 80s and like I mentioned, he's a cultural commentator and a social critic, and that's the interesting thing about this talk. To be honest with you, it's one of my favorite talks that we've done so far this year, maybe in the history of this podcast, because as, I, as I've gotten used to, when interviews kind of go differently than the way I think that they are going to go. That's typically a good thing. But in this case, it was a great thing because we, we talk about, you know, his time with, um, you know, the, the Guinness family and being a part of the Guinness legacy and all of that. And that's great. But then we, we dig into what he saw in China and where that ideology comes from with communism and Marxism, but how that also has really infected the West and how cultural Marxism has started to really degrade and erode the foundations of our society. And so we kind of compare and contrast the the Chinese revolution in the 20th century and the current degradation of the American uh, Western culture, as it were. And then we talked about just Christian apologetics and how intellectualism has become kind of a curse word for certain Christians because they're like, oh, you shouldn't have to have any intellect to have faith. You should just have faith. Uh, we, we get into kind of the hard disciplines versus soft disciplines and how that really works into the conversation about intellectualism. And then I asked him to give me his best Christian apologetics response to the problem of evil. And his answer was just absolutely fantastic. And then we talked about Jordan Peterson quite a bit. So if you know anything about the Exodus seminar that was part of the Daily Wire series that Jordan Peterson headed up. Oz Guinness was one of the guys that was on that panel with Greg Hurwitz and Dennis Prager and Jonathan Pajo and other folks. And so we got to talk about that, how he got involved with that particular thing. And then we talked specifically about uh, his his view on the faith journey that Jordan Peterson is on. Because as many people know, as many people are kind of leaning in, Jordan Peterson has a tremendous amount of reverence for the Bible. He has a tremendous amount of reverence for a Judeo-Christian ethic that undergirds the West and the human flourishing that has become a downstream consequence of that and how his daughter and his wife have both come to faith in Christ and how he's just kind of on that journey and he's on that precipice. And so I really enjoyed his insight there. And then we do talk a little bit about his latest book, Signals of Transcendence, and specifically a quote um, from his chapter talking about G.K. Chesterton and the way that he was able to kind of weave that into our current moment. I just absolutely loved it. Asked him what he's working on now, what his one book he would leave for humanity would be. It was just, man, we went everywhere in this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I think you guys will as well. So without further ado, let's get into it. Oz Guinness, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Well, thanks for having me. A delight to be with you. 
Now, I will say that here recently, there may be just something in the air about this year. I've interviewed a bunch of people with like a lot of leather bound, beautiful books behind them. So I can feel the intellectual ability coming off the screen as we even get started here. But now people that may not know who you are, again, I talked about you a little bit in my intro. They don't maybe realize that your last name isn't just by accident, that it's, oh, is that Guinness of like the Guinness? And what's funny about that is I've known about your work for a long time. And I had no idea, Oz, that you were the great, great, great grandson of the one and only Arthur Guinness, the Dublin, Ireland brewer. So tell me a little bit about that. Like as a member of the family, do you have to start your day by like brushing your teeth with Guinness? Like, is this something you have to have with every meal? Tell me how this works. Not exactly, but I'm very proud and grateful to be an heir. Um, You know, he founded our family brewery and did an incredible job caring for the workers, always paying them a little higher than the average and putting in health care and education and all sorts of good things that were very unusual in the 18th century. Hmm. And uh, in, in the process, we became, our family became Ireland's most generous philanthropist, but all done early on anonymously, because that's you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, as our Lord said, and so on. So I'm very, I'm very grateful to be, you know, the family doesn't own the brewery now. It's now owned, sadly, by a multinational corporation, Diageo, who don't have the same commitment to ethics and so on as the family did. But I'm very grateful for the heritage. You know, I was a strong Christian, hmm. came to faith in the first great awakening in the 18th century through the preaching of John Wesley. Okay, I did not have I was not aware of that. What what's what's interesting about that is I'm piecing together as you were talking. So I the first time and only time I visited Ireland, I arrived in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day 2003, <laughs> and which was like insane and that was like my first trip on a plane was I basically flew to Chicago and then flew to Ireland and got there at 7 a.m. And so I went to the brewery and in the floor, obviously, where you're getting the, the tour, like, you know, behind a whole bunch of glass is the lease that Arthur Guinness signed in 1759. Now, for those of you that aren't aware of this, there was a 1,000 or a 100 pound, I believe, down payment on the lease. And then they were going to be charged another 45 pounds annually for 9,000 years. He literally signed a 9,000 year lease on a piece of property in Dublin that now, I mean, it's almost incalculable the amount of money it would cost to have that much property in Dublin now. I mean, is that something that the family talks about quite a bit? Because that's one of the most shrewd business moves I've ever heard of in my entire life. Well, it's one of the most famous business deals in history. Mm. But more importantly, now, having come to faith through Wesley, he followed Wesley's custom, earn all you can, save all you can, and the third one, crucially, give all you can. And they did. I think that that's absolutely fantastic. It's such a, it's such a cool thing. And when you talk to like serious beer drinkers, like everyone's got a, a sweet spot for Guinness. But the interesting thing is they're like, well, if you're not getting it, you know, from the tap, you're not getting it right in any way. Everyone's got their own way of, of consuming that. But it's great to have a beer of your namesake. But, but to get it. You've got to drink the draft, I think, and you've got to have someone who knows how to pour it because the secret of Guinness is in the pour. Well, okay, now you're going to force me to ask another question. What's the secret? All right, for those that have had Guinness before and maybe it wasn't the, the best thing, like maybe they was poured wrong. So what's the pour? Well, if you pull it down and just do a straight thing to fill it, you don't get the same 
effect as if you stop halfway and leave it for 30 seconds and then continue again. You know, I love the fact, you remember when the Bud Light thing uh, broke out over Dylan Mulvaney? You know, there was a wonderful quip by some smart Alex saying, how perfect that a man pretending to be a woman should be promoting a watery liquid pretending to be a beer. <laughs> Which, hey, as a member of our family, I enjoyed immensely. I can imagine because, uh, you know, and it's it's interesting to even bring that up because you are a cultural commentator. And we'll certainly get more into that because a lot of people that kind of do what you and I do, they're like, oh, don't get into the culture wars. But that's where the battle's being fought. But I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning with you. So you have a very interesting story in terms of your upbringing. You were born in China, actually, to missionary parents. Um, and the interesting thing about your story, Oz, is you witnessed firsthand the Chinese Revolution. And so that's in, in the late 40s where, you know, 17 million Chinese were murdered by the Japanese. There's also the rape of Nanking that happened in and around that time period. So just describe to me what that was like growing up in that time period, but not just in that time period, but in that place, because this is World War II era. People don't really know a lot. When you say the rape of Nanking, it doesn't really ring in people's memories like it should. It's something I feel like we should learn about in school, but just take me through what it was like. Well, i got to say that some of the things I say I heard from others because I was too young. Mm. So in the Japanese invasion, and you know, the U.S. entered the war in 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor, but Europe entered in 1939 and China in 1937. The Japanese, as you said, they killed 17 million in the invasion. And the rape of Nanking, not the biggest, only quote, only 300,000 were massacred, but it was the most brutal hmm. massacre of the 20th century. And even the Nazis present were staggered by the brutality. Then I was born in 41, and we lived in an area, my family, including my two brothers, where there was a horrendous famine, and we were surrounded by the Japanese army, the communist army, and on the third side, the nationalist army. And there was a terrible famine in which five million died in three months, sadly, including my brothers. But we moved to the capital city, Nanjing, Nanking. And so I do remember that part. I was a seven-year-old at the beginning of the Chinese Revolution. And I well remember the day my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just abandoned the city and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. And three months later, in they came. And there were trials in the morning, executions in the afternoon. You'd meet friends in the street. They looked by you as if they'd never seen you or heard of you, because it was more than their lives were worth to acknowledge they knew a blue-eyed foreign devil, as it was put in the chants that accompanied us. So I remember those first two years. It gave me a very realistic view of human life, but also of Marxism. Okay, so I guess take me through the practical side of how is it that that you all survived that time period? Because it would seem like to me as an as an observer that being outsiders that you would have been targeted, no? Well, in the 1930s, when the communists started, they captured missionaries and Westerners and executed them on the spot. But by the late 40s, early 50s, we were under house arrest and I was with my parents two years under house arrest in the reign of terror. 
But looking back, and then I was allowed to go. My parents were allowed to entrust me to friends of theirs, and I went back to England and school. Uh, they were kept another two years, and there were false trials and so on. But looking back, there were about 12 Westerners left in China, and people knew exactly where they were, and the communists were trying to show that they were they were, they were not barbarians. They could behave as an, a real government. So, in fact, they were probably more safe than at uh, earlier periods in the 30s. Hey, guys, real quick. As you may have heard me mention previously, before I started this Undaunted Life thing full time, I worked in insurance and financial advisement. Now, while doing that, I got to sit down with literally hundreds of families to discuss their financial plans and goals. I got to see some families that had all their ducks in a row, but unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of the people I sat down with had major holes in their financial plans. So whether it was not diversifying their retirement investments, having no plan for replacement income if the breadwinner became too sick or too hurt to work, or even having a plan for the death of a family member, most American families have left themselves very exposed to potential financial ruin. So that's why I want to introduce you to my friend and my financial advisor, Mike McCall with Bluecrest Financial. Now, Mike can help you reach your chosen financial goals by helping you develop an overall plan to ensure you and your family's financial success. So whether it's IRAs or stocks or rollovers or life insurance or long-term care, disability income, you name it, Mike can help. Now, just imagine the peace of mind that comes with knowing that you're taking proactive steps towards financial security for you and your loved ones. Think about the legacy you could leave behind. Something that truly reflects your conservative values and the hard work you put in throughout your life. So I trust Mike McCall with my financial planning, so I think you should give him a shot as well. So to receive your free personal and or business financial assessment, go to the link in the show notes for this episode to book a 15-minute Zoom call with Mike. Don't try to piecemeal your own financial plan. Let an expert help you. Again, go to the link in the bio. Click that link in the bio to get your free assessment. So with that in mind, obviously you mentioned Marxism. One thing that I feel, I feel the pressure now, Oz, because I have a three-year-old son and a one-year-old son. And so I want to teach them the things that I had to learn as an adult. I want to teach them that as they grow up. But one thing that I don't feel like, certainly the public, uh, public education system in the United States does, is really educating us on the atrocities of the 20th century. So if you learn anything, you learn about the, the, the Jews and the Holocaust, but I didn't learn about the Soviet gulags until I was in my 20s or 30s, right? Like I didn't, I didn't know about them at all, right? I didn't know Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a person. Uh, I didn't know about the rape of Nan King until Jocko Willink, uh, you know, retired Navy SEAL, talked about it on his show in stark detail for like four or five hours. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, Oz, but obviously a lot of the educational establishment leans very much left. They're at least communist sympathizers, you know, Marxist sympathizers, if not full-blown, you know, card carriers. I guess what what kind of downstream consequences come from a young person that doesn't grow up with the understanding that the 20th century was the most ace with the most atheistic and bloodiest century in the history of humanity? Well, I think we should start as followers of Jesus just with a, a biblical view of realism. You know, humans are sinners, and we often go wrong. So we should never be surprised. And as you say, the 20th century, with the carnage of war and the horror of totalitarianism, you know, a huge, maybe 250 million human beings were killed by their fellow human beings, which is a horrendous total. And who can believe in humanity 
uh, in in a Pollyannish way after that. So we, we need a theological, a biblical realism. You know, a lot of American Christians, they only see death on television, in films. Right. And when it hits them in real life, you know, they're, quote, disappointed in God, or why did God allow this? No, no. This is the world in which we're living, and the Bible's much more realistic. There's no airbrushing reality in the Bible. But certainly we need to, I, I say very simply about, you know, there, the French Revolution, which started so much of this, only lasted 10 years in France. Then came Napoleon, dictator. But it was like a volcanic explosion in Western history. And the lava flows have flowed out ever since and are still flowing. The first big one was the 19th century, so-called revolutionary nationalism. That's not one that Americans know much about. The second and third are more important. The second, designed in the 19th century by Karl Marx, is revolutionary socialism, one word, communism. Hmm. Now, in many ways, with the Soviet Union defeated, people think that's over, but of course, China is still communist. But what we're facing in the West today is not classical Marxism. It's cultural Marxism. And the inroads are very profound, often disguised by the homely word wokeism. Hmm. <laughs> it's actually cultural Marxism that's behind it all. Now, that was designed by people like Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s, and then picked up by the Frankfurt School, so-called, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. But the important thing in America was in 1967 and 68, the leader of the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse, and a German radical called for a long march through the institutions. <laughs> Your audience won't remember 68. I do. My first visit to the U.S. A hundred American cities were on fire. Martin Luther King assassinated. Senator Robert Kennedy assassinated. But for all the protests, far, far worse than 2020. For all of that, the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. So they called for a long march. Just as Mao escaped his encirclement in China, did a 6,000-mile detour, then swung around and won the whole of China, their idea was they wanted to win the colleges and universities, the press and the media, what they called the culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment, and then sweep around and win the culture. Nobody would ever have thought then that they would win bastions like business or the military. They were to be conservative, diehard conservative, and now you have woke business and woke elements in the military. So the long march, cultural Marxism, critical race theory, critical agenda theory has been profoundly important. But I would say, going back to where we started, Kyle, their revolutions never succeed. Their oppressions never end, and the promised future they talk about never arrives. I think that that's a fantastic way of putting it, and you literally hit on about a, a hundred things that I wanted to talk to you about in this discussion, so I think that's a great setup for it. But one thing that I didn't hear you mention, Oz, was the church, because the thing that I see that is one of the most nefarious things that this cultural Marxist agenda has done has convinced um, – 
trying to think of the nicest way to say this, well-meaning idiots inside of the church, they've convinced them to take up the mantle of these ideologies. So for instance, let's just use a specific example, critical race theory. And let's look at the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC. They voted, uh, J.D. Greer presided over this vote and other prominent uh, Baptists came out to talk about this. And they were talking about critical race theory as, you know what, this is just a lens through which we can view the plight of the Christian of color in America. It's just a lens. And they're ignoring the fact that it's fruit of the poisonous tree, that it's not just critical race theory. It comes from critical theory, which comes from critical legal studies, which comes from the the Frankfurt School, which comes from Karl Marx, which comes from the pits of hell. And they, they don't trace it all the way back there. And then they say things like, you know what, we're just going to redeem this ideology. We're just going to, you know, not we're just going to ignore the parts of it that are obvious, obviously satanic and atheistic. And we're just going to take the good parts of it because, you know, Jesus can redeem anything. And I feel like churches have just bought hook, line and sinker into this thing. And they don't understand that they were the ones that cracked the door open for the wolf. What do you say? Monstrously naive, I would say, you know, when I came to faith and I've followed Jesus 60 years now, But when I was a young believer, say the 1960s in England, the great challenge was Protestant liberalism. Mm. And most evangelicals and almost all Catholics stood firm. It was Protestant liberals who succumbed to the spirit of the age. But now with what you're talking about, critical race theory, and even more critical gender theory, and what I call the rainbow uh, wave, Christians and evangelicals are caving in to the sexual revolution in unprecedented ways. And this is tragic and stupid. Now, if you go back, say, in the Bible, you can see, say, when the northern kingdom, Samaria, Israel, they were so acculturated, so accommodating to the spirit of the age, They literally became the Lost Ten Tribes. They acculturated themselves into oblivion. But while the southern kingdom, Judah, because they sinned, was sent into exile, they had a notion of faithfulness. So you had exile and return, and they survived. And parts of the church that are naively giving in, they're just going to acculturate themselves into oblivion acculturated beyond recognition, acculturated beyond repair. They're acculturating themselves into oblivion. Like you take the Episcopal Church here. It's committed institutional suicide. Mm. For evangelical churches, there's a big church now in Atlanta going through that challenge at the present moment. Mm -hmm. It is tragic and stupidly naive. Okay, so let's talk about that church in Atlanta, North Point Community Church, Andy Stanley. Obviously, you know, this interview is coming out a couple of weeks or a few weeks after the the conference that they held. Uh, interestingly enough, I'm certainly going to spend more time talking about this on my show. They didn't allow anyone to record during this conference, this pro-LGBTQ conference that they were basically saying it was for the the health of the kids, which if you want to have a nefarious ideology, just hide behind children because everyone that is critical of it seems like a demon. Um, but they wouldn't let him let him record. They had two openly homosexual married so-called speakers. They had one guy who was fired from the by his uh, elders at his church for allowing his son 
who was openly attracted to children uh, to serve in the the kids uh, ministry uh, and a bunch of people that are basically LGBTQ affirming. And then you have a guy like Andy Stanley, uh, unbelievably smug, unbelievably self-assured, going and doing this conference, being the headliner, allowing them to, to come and do this. Then he goes to a church on Sunday, does not live stream his his sermon, mind you, but he responds to all the criticism that they got. And then some people are like, oh, well, he, he upheld the, the biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman, which he most certainly did not do. And the thing about a guy like Andy Stanley is he seems like a wolf with the head of a snake because he is a master communicator which means he is in and of himself a master manipulator. So talk to me a little bit about these, again, mega church pastors, which that's kind of a, a broad brush because there are guys with enormous ministries that are very, very dedicated to the Bible and the gospel and the truth therein. But then you have guys like Andy Stanley or Joel Olstein or a Stephen Furtick or any of these types of folks where it's just like they're, they're doing their best to tut-tut culture and yet they're doing it deceptively. And I, I, frankly, aside from getting mad, I don't know what else to do about it. Well, you know, I've met Andy and shared a lunch with him and enjoyed him immensely. So I don't want to attack him personally. Well, I would say his idea of unhitching our faith from the Old Testament was, was a laughable, terrible mistake. I mean, the glory of so much, it takes a human dignity. It's in the Old Testament. High view of freedom, a high view of truth, a high view of words, a high view of justice, all of peace. You go on to covenant, go on down the line. They're all Old Testament ideas that are there in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we should never unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Now, of course, the new fulfills and completes the old in ways that are very important. But we should never lose the Old Testament. And I would say to dear Andy, you do that and continue down the road slowly, you will just commit suicide pastorally. Now, that's sad. Now, it's happening on a wider scale all across the board. Now, we should rem you remember the old saying by Dean Ng, he who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. Hmm. In other words, you try and get on the right side of history or be fashionable to your age. Well, history moves on fast and people are washed up. And a lot of the things that are the gospel of the megachurches, I'm not going to mention names, they are simply not the gospel, and they will be textbook examples in the future of diluted gospels, heretical gospels, and so on. Now, go back to the Bible again. Take that difference between the lost ten tribes and those in Judah who are faithful. Faithfulness is the key to the staying power of the Jews staying Jews. Faithfulness is the key to the staying power of Christians staying Christian. And we've got to understand that and have courage and confidence in the gospel. Hey guys, real quick, if you were anything like me, you don't like paying for stuff that you think you're capable of doing yourself. So a lot of people end up doing that with their IT at their businesses. And the problem is, is if you're not an expert at it, you can leave yourself open to attacks. So I literally just heard a story about a company that DIY'd their servers and data security and that kind of stuff, and they got hacked. And they had all of their important business files stolen. And they ended up having to pay the hackers $15,000 in ransom money to get their files back. 
like seriously, like 15 grand just to be able to run their business. So I don't want this to happen to the business owners in my audience. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends at LMS Tech. So LMS Tech is an IT security company that can help your business with all kinds of IT headaches. So that's network installation, configuration, security, and monitoring, server setup and maintenance cloud data storage, email management and security, antivirus management, industry specific compliance. So this is like HIPAA, financial services, insurance, credit cards, that kind of thing. And even custom software implementation like CRM and HR tools. So while you focus on making your business successful, let LMS Tech secure IT. I trust LMS Tech with the security for my business here at Undaunted Life, so I think you should give them a shot as well. So to receive your free IT and data security assessment, visit this website, getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech. Don't risk your data ending up in the wrong hands. Invite the experts in to protect your business. Again, the site is getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech to get your free assessment. The links to all of that will be in the show notes as well. I think you're absolutely right in that this this move to people trying to make the gospel sweeter somehow, like they're going to present it in a way that, you know, takes off the rough edges and makes it more palatable. And it's like, do you understand that you don't need to do that? The gospel can stand on its own two feet. But inherent in this discussion, Oz, is a discussion about deconstruction, which is kind of this new modern term, which the way deconstructionists will talk about it, it's like, no, 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 we're just trying to get to the foundations of our faith. The problem is, is most people don't ever build anything back on that foundation. They deconstruct yeah. their faith and then they have no faith thereafter. So what are your thoughts on this whole deconstruction movement? Well, as you said about the Southern Baptists, it is folly to think we can use their tools and come out differently. You know, deconstructionism mm -hmm. ends in nihilism. You know, you end with what they call a hermeneutics of suspicion. You interrogate everything and assault it and deconstruct it and pull it down, and you've got nothing left. You just go on and on and on doing that, and there's nothing. Now, the point is, when you destroy truth, which they've done with their postmodern ideas, all you have left is power. So the Romans are very clear. If you set up a contest of power against power, which is what deconstruction does, the only possible peaceful outcome is what the Romans called the peace of despotism. In other words, you have a power so powerful that can put down every other power. And that's authoritarianism. So deconstructionism leads to nihilism and it leads to despotism. And for Christians to think they can do that is really stupid. Now, by deconstruction, people mean losing their faith or backsliding. The question is, what was wrong with their faith in the beginning? Mm. So take one simple example. The final reason for everyone to believe should be that we consider faith to be true. Jesus, for example, did rise from the dead in history. It's true. But without truth, you'll always be vulnerable to doubt and to assaults and to deconstruction. But many of the so-called religious nuns N-O-N-E-S, you know, never had a concept of truth. No wonder they doubted and fell away from the faith and were vulnerable to our deconstructionist people and so on. In other words, the great deficiency in the faith. I think you're you're absolutely right. And it's another, I'm going back to the children that we have currently in culture. They're being marinated in postmodernism where they're learning phraseology like, well, that's just your truth. 
which mm-hmm. it's like, no, no, no. Like my experience of something is my experience, but it I don't get to change truth. This either is a microphone or it's not. This either is a pen or it's not. It either writes with blue ink or it doesn't. It's not my perception of it that changes it. And so Eric Metaxas wrote a fantastic book last year called The Letter to the American Church. And it uh, was kind of a, a derivative of his work in the Bonhoeffer autobiography uh, or biography rather. And I thought he did a great job of kind of encapsulating the message and the warning to the American church to not go down the supposedly primrose path towards destruction. So if you were to give a letter to the American church and do it right now in this interview, what would you say if you could speak to the entirety of American Christendom and give them a warning about what's to come if they keep going this direction? Well, I tried to write that over 30 years in various books, Mm. you know. One of the things that following Peter Berger, I've been distinctive is you don't just look at dangerous ideas, secularism, Marxism, whatever it is. You have to look at how culture and analyze culture and see how it shapes us. So you look at the crisis of authority in the church. We should be people under authority. Jesus is Lord. The scriptures are his authority. It's gone. But not just because of bad theology, but things like consumerism. In the American world of consumer, everything's a matter of your choice. Pick and choose. The church of your choice. The theology of your choice, etc., etc., etc. And you can see that our consumerist world has undermined authority just as powerfully as, say, open attacks through philosophy on theology. So I've tried to get people aware of the dangerous ideas, but also of the way culture shapes us. So we've become... The American church is weak because it's worldly. Okay. I have so many other questions, but I'm also looking at the clock here. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw away everything that I was going to ask and just keep flowing on this. Um, The church has become worldly. The church has become downstream of culture. And the problem is, is when the church tries to be like culture, then they cannot be seen as different. So you walk into a normal mega church, they have secular music playing in the lobby. You know, the first song the band sings is a secular song. And then they kind of work into their kind of boyfriend, Jesus music, like God's for you. And so he's going to give you everything that you could ever want and need in life and all that kind of music. And there's no depth to anything. And the the issue with kind of that seeker sensitive movement is at best you're going to get an inch deep and a mile wide theology with a lot of the people in your crowd. A lot of people will also potentially leave thinking I'm saved because I raised my hand at the end of the Ted talk concert and they, they didn't actually have any heart change. There wasn't a call to repentance or anything. So I guess, do you have concerns over this kind of seeker sensitive model? Because if you want to pick one and say, this is the one that's being very cultural, it's that seeker sensitive model. Absolutely. But there's only one, Kyle. And I wrote a book 30 years ago called Dining with the Devil, The Mm. Megachurch Movement Flirts with Modernity. That very idea. So the Apostle Paul says, I'm all things to all Jew to the Jews, Gentile to the Gentiles, in order to win them to Christ. And what the seeker-sensitive movement does, which Friedrich Schleiermacher, the Protestant liberal, did in in the 18th century, they do the first part, but not the second. So Schleiermacher says, we must reach the culture despisers of the gospel. He reached them and became one of them. Hmm. And the seeker-sensitive movement reaches them and then joins them. 
Whereas we've got to reach them in order to win them to Jesus. And that's very, very important. You take even something like literacy. You know, when people didn't read, yes, we've got to put the gospel in cartoons and pictures and all sorts of ways in order to introduce them to a biblical understanding so they can read books like Romans, which are tough argument and so on. So the first half of the thing is right. We reach people where they are in order to bring them back to our Lord. So I guess, Oz, the other question that I have is there are people out there, and I've said this before, in order for things like cultural Marxism to be successful, you need two types of people. You need conscious nefarious actors and you need useful idiots so the conscious nefarious actors they know that they're wolves they are trying to be deceptive and they are trying to gain sex power money you know something and then you have the useful idiots the people that just go along to get along you know i want to be known for what i'm for not what i'm against and well my pastor seems real smart and he went to bible college and i didn't and i you know i'm just trying to you know keep four wheels on the ground with my family so i'm just going to listen to whatever this guy says but talk to me a little bit about how we as people that are speaking into this cultural degradation can warn these people that, again, I've unfairly and maybe rudely put into the useful idiots category to be like, no, 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 wake up. Like, you can't just go along to get along on something that's this important because I, I feel like we live in this culture that everything is so sanitized, so bubble wrapped and so convenient that the thought of even being slightly disputatious towards our pastor and questioning the direction that they're taking the church just would send people into apoplexy. So give me a little bit more thoughts on in terms of how the sheep can be more effective and how they could potentially push back. Well, first, I'm with you, and I use the word useful idiots too, but I don't specify by name. But warn people, that, of course, is the Marxist idea, to be able sure. to exploit and use, and the useful idiots end up as roadkill. And the juggernaut moves on, and they're just naive. Now, I would say we have to again, go back to the Bible. Why are the Jews such great people in terms of argument and law and passion for justice? Because they teach their kids to raise questions from the very beginning. Mm. And we should do that today. Unafraid, we believe in truth. We should raise our kids to ask questions and to challenge people so that even the Lord allows Abraham to challenge him. Shall not the judge of the earth do, etc.? and so on. So we need to create a culture of free inquiry, passionate pursuit of truth, and a freedom to challenge people with questions. You know, Paul uh, tackling Peter face to face, and so on. So this is incredibly important today, and uh, we must not be useful idiots. So one reason, another thing, well, I mentioned raising questions, another is history. Hmm. If we don't have history, we don't know where these things are coming from. So, you know, I live in Virginia. Our good friend, Glenn Youngkin, is now the governor. Right. Thanks to the explosion of critical race theory in the Loudoun County schools. Now, many Christians had never heard of it till it blew up a couple of years ago. But if you read cultural Marxism, for example, Wilhelm Reich, who gave us the term the sexual revolution in the 1920s, he's quite open. We have two enemies, he says, the church and parents. Hmm. 
So, for example, we will sideline parents through sex education at three and four. And you have the same thing in H.G. Wells around the 1900. Christians should have been aware of these things. So the sexual revolution, many Christians think it goes back to Hugh Hefner and Playboy in the 1960s and the pill. No, no, it goes back to the same place in Paris that the ideas for the French Revolution came from, the Palais Royal. And the early architects of sexual revolution, including the Marquis de Sade, were virulently anti-Christian. So to be overtaken by the sexual revolution today, as many Christians are, is immensely naive, and they become your candidates to be useful idiots, as the Marxist term is. Well, and, and to kind of keep that thread going, you know, for you to become a useful idiot adult, it's probably because you had useful idiot parents. And I know I'm kind of painting with the broadest brush possible here, but let's talk a little bit about, about parenting, because I've gone on record saying before that now, in our current culture, and the current state of what we know to be true about many of the public school systems in this country and the teachers unions is that the only two options for education for a child now are vetted private Christian school, emphasis on vetted, because just because they have a cross in the lobby doesn't mean they're a Christian school, and homeschool. And that those are really the only two options because you really can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Oz, I live in Oklahoma. Every single county in Oklahoma votes red and has done so for the last you know, handful of presidential elections. We're about as red as it gets. It's us in Mississippi. We're in a running gun battle for the most conservative state, right? Well, there is a middle school that's five minutes away from my house where a parent said that their child came home and said, Dad, what's non-binary? And dad's like, wait, what? Because what happened was is this is English class. They had a substitute teacher. This person went up to the board wrote their pronouns on the board and introduced themselves as non-binary to the class and said, what questions do you have? As opposed to what page did you get to in To Kill a Mockingbird yesterday? Okay, let's go to the next page and start from there. And so do you agree with my assessment that the only two ways to effectively educate your children now are vetted private Christian school or homeschool? Or I guess what overall would be your message to parents about, hey, this is how you should educate your children so that they don't end up in that useful idiot category. Well, I, I, I sympathize with what you're saying. I put it a bit broader. Hmm. But the principle you're saying is right. And I love the rabbis put it this way. What did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free after 400 odd years. Hmm. They're going to the promised land. He never mentions freedom. He never mentions the land of milk and, of milk and honey. Three times Moses talks about children because the story we tell to our children is the secret of continuity and transmission. And that's true for America as a republic. It's true for the church as a church. So you're absolutely right. Transmission depends on faithfulness. But here I'd make one slight. My, my son, for instance, I'm very proud of him, adore him to, to death. He is a contrarian. Mm. If he'd gone to, he went to good early Christian schools, yes. At a certain age, though, if he'd gone to a very Christian establishment, he might have been a contrarian there and turned out an atheist. He went to the uh, a secular public university, the, the top one in the country, and as a contrarian, his faith was deepened and challenged, and he came out stronger than ever. 
So I follow in a way Francis Schaeffer used to say, always keep them one step ahead of the game. So you're going to a school, well, teach them the challenge of the non-binary and so on. So they're aware of what it is, the craziness of what it is, and able to resist it. So I don't think everyone should only be in Christian context, or you'd breed inward-looking people. Because um, often Christian schools need that wider challenge, and we've got to have that. So I'm, I'm basically with you, uh, but there's a slightly broader idea too, transformation, engagement, keeping them ahead of the game, recognizing some kids have a character to, to flourish under the challenge of, of opposition. Okay, and so with that, there's almost a draw towards Christian apologetics, which is something that you've done and that you've been a part of. And that's one thing that I'm excited about for my son at his school, that from pre-K through 12th grade, Christian apologetics is one of those moments because as my buddy Jay Warner Wallace pointed out recently in an interview I did with him, it's like some people think like, oh, we need an apologist, so let's go hire one, as opposed to I need to be the apologist. I need to be able to give an apologia or apologia for what I believe and for why I have this faith. But I will say, I've noticed this trend with some, you know, pockets of Christianity that think that intellectualism and argumentation and philosophy is bad because it's anti-faith. It's like, no, no, no. I don't need Titus Kennedy to to talk to me about, you know, archaeology. I don't need, uh, you know, Frank Turk to talk to me about the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, cosmological argument. I don't need any of that. I don't need Os Guinness talking to me about signals of transcendence. I don't need any of that. I just need to have faith. But for some people, for like maybe a C.S. Lewis that you mentioned in that book that I just mentioned, that wouldn't have been sufficient. That wouldn't have been meaty or weighty enough for them to reckon with. So what are your thoughts around this idea that somehow intellectualism and the pursuits of that is bad for your overall Christian apologetic. Well, again, Kyle, constantly with these people, make it biblical and make it simple. In the Old Testament, they're called to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and strength. Mm. And our Lord, intriguingly, adds one thing, mind. Did he know that evangelicals were going to be anti-intellectual <laughs> and they'd need mind added? I don't know. But clearly, we've got to love the Lord with every part of ourselves, including minds. And so 1 Peter 3 and so on gives us that challenge. We need to know the reason for the hope that's within us. So these people pretend to be simple and super biblical. They're actually anti-biblical. Now, not everyone's an artist. Not everyone's a great thinker. Not everyone's a great doer. We're all different. Some are good with their hands, some are good leaders, some are good thinkers, some are good this, that, and the other. But we, we've got to see that all that we are, including our minds, is devoted all out to the Lord. You know, I have on my wall about 30 autographs. One of my favorites is Rodin, not a Christian, the great sculptor. But you know his famous uh, sculptor of the thinker, Ponce. Mm -hmm. In his commentary, Rodin says, you've got to look at carefully. His toes are gripping the rock. He is thinking with everything. It's not just his head. I don't like the word intellectual, as if thinking is purely in your mind. No, it's a whole person passionately committed, in our case, to Christ and committed to thinking in that way. And clearly, that runs through the whole scripture. 
It certainly does. And for you, you've obviously dedicated a huge portion of your life to the study of philosophy. I believe that's what you got your 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 doctorate in was philosophy. No, but theology. Okay, gotcha. So, but philosophy still has been a, a large part of, of what you do. And and you're a cultural philosopher, if I could, you know, give you that title. But then there is kind of that interesting dissonance between the so-called soft disciplines and the so-called hard disciplines. So there are a lot of people like, well, if I can't prove it in a in a lab, or if I can't read it from, you know, history that I approve of, or if I can't find it in the sand somewhere, then I'm not going to believe it. So talk to me a little bit about kind of this this difference between the soft and the hard disciplines. Cause now it's like, okay, let's say we accept intellectualism. There are people that are like, well, I like this style of intellectualism and not that one or vice versa. Well, you know, when I was a student, one of the people I had in seminars was Bertrand Russell. Okay. Grand old atheist. One of the most preposterous things he said, and almost everyone recognizes it now, he said quite brightly and said it many times, what science cannot discover Humanity cannot know. Well, that is absolutely ridiculous. Sure. A lot of things science can't discover, including love and creativity and various things like that. Absolutely absurd. In other words, we are more than our minds. And we've got to recognize we're more than the prefrontal, you know, our rational thinking. We have all sorts of parts of the brain, and we're not only left-brained, we are right-brained, and, and so on. We not only have IQ, we should have EQ, mm-hmm. emotional quotient, and so on. So we, we've got to have a much more balanced biblical view of humanity than certainly the atheists do. Now, I don't like the word intellectual, because often it is people who live totally in their own heads. And you know the famous book by <clears throat> uh, the famous book on intellectuals ends with the last chapter looking at people like uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and many others, and, and simply beware intellectuals. In other words, they lived in their heads, and there was so much hypocrisy, and the way they really acted in life was quite differently from their ideals. So I'm not a fan of being an intellectual. I'm a thinker. I'm glad to be. But I never refer to people as, well, you know, in the first Lausanne Congress in 1974, I was given the topic evangelism among intellectuals. And I said I'd be privileged to have a go at the topic, but it's got to be evangelism among thinking people. Hmm. And I think that what most people get into is they try to look at their what they perceive of their own characteristics and say, well, I wasn't a good student, so I can't be an intellectual. And I think people get into the same way with Bible study, right? Because we don't think we can just read the Bible. We have to study it. And if you don't have time to study it, you might as well not even read it. And so it becomes this cycle that I've, I frankly had been in for several years of my life to where it's like, I'm so busy. I don't have time to study this. So I'm not even going to read it. And so it leads people to, to not even dig into the scriptures because they think that they don't have the intellect to be able to reckon with what the words say. But then whenever you read through the Bible, I, I'm, I'm in uh, the middle of Matthew right now, and this is where Jesus is doing a lot of parables. And it's like the reality of these parables is they're not meant to be understood by everybody. Because the parables, when understood properly, people that are of faith, that do have their faith in Christ, it'll deepen their understanding and relationship with Christ. But those that do not have a relationship with Jesus, it'll it'll still be dimly, uh, dimly seen for them. They won't be able to really view it in the proper context. Um, <clears throat> before I get off of kind of the Christian apologetics thing, because I have several other things I wanted to cover with you, 
I want to give you the, the number one question that is probably the number one question that Christian apologists have to deal with, which is the problem of evil. And so when someone says, look, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic because I can't reckon with the fact that there is a loving God, an all-powerful God that allows bad things to happen to good people, that allows children to be raped and murdered, that allows the Holocaust to happen, this, that, and, and, and whatever. And so how would you respond in your experience to someone that says, hey, the problem of evil is just too much for me to get over? Well, Kyle, you can't answer that in seconds. And I right. always do it specific to the person who's raising it because there's usually cancer in their family or something, mm -hmm. reason behind it. You've got to address that. Otherwise, this is abstract and too theoretical. But for me, the heart of a Christian response, and I would start first by looking at the alternatives and how they're unworkable and hopeless. But the heart of a Christian response, I think, has a threefold chord. First, it should have been otherwise. Our Lord at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept, yes, but three times he was furious. Death, premature, was all wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. That's incredibly important. When we meet evil, it should have been otherwise. But secondly, no other God has wounds. As we see in the suffering servant in Isaiah, the hideous disfigurement of the servant suffering on behalf of those he comes to rescue. Of course, that's our Lord. Dostoevsky famously came to faith after gazing at the picture of Hans Holbein's The Descent of Jesus from the Cross, which is his family taking down the dead body of Jesus, scarred and battered and so on. He looked at it and he said at the end of it, I do not know the answer to the problem of evil and suffering, but I do know love. And the third thing, each of these, of course, you have to expand much more fully than I'm doing. Yeah. The third part, and I got this from my philosophy tutor at Oxford, the resistance leader knows what he's doing. Basil Mitchell, a great philosopher, pointed out that in the World War II, if you were a resistance fighter, the worst of all things was the fear of betrayal. You signed on, you didn't know exactly who was giving you orders. And so he put it like this. Imagine, Kyle, I meet you in a bar in France. Kyle, I hear you want to sign on to the resistance. Let's talk for an hour tonight. Ask me any question you like. Sign on the end, if you will. After tonight, we'll never talk face to face. Too dangerous. Now, in that circumstances, the great fear is betrayal. Mm. And you trusted wrongly. So the key questions we've got to ask God, is he there? Is he good? Now, that means we won't answer all the other questions in life. Why did he allow this? Why did he allow that? Any more than the resistance leader. Oh, he's in Gestapo uniform arresting one of our side. Unbeknownst to me, he's releasing them. But I can't see the release. Only after the war are all the secrets opened. Mm. But the point is you need to know why you trust the resistance leader he knows best, and one day the secrets will be all open. And that's our faith in the Lord. The resistance leader knows what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. So are we sure that coming to faith we know he's there? 
and we know is good, then we can trust him, whatever. Now, I would expand on those three in some ways. They would take longer to do it than we've had. Well, I think if you're going to put it in a nutshell, that's a pretty darn good nutshell. So I really appreciate you going into that. I think that there's a lot of great foundations for people that just listen to this to be able to build off of. One thing that I found interesting, Oz, uh, when I was looking at your website is your tagline, if you will, is a quiet voice on behalf of faith, freedom, truth, reason, and civility. And so I've seen, excuse me, I've seen nothing that would counter that. I, I see you as all of those things. And I think that was readily apparent in what you did during your time on the Exodus seminar or the video series you did with Jordan Peterson and the Daily Wire. Um, it is an absolutely fantastic series. I've uh, suggested that just about anybody that can, that has the time to dedicate to to watching those, to go ahead and do so. Obviously, you were there with you know Jonathan Pajot and Dennis Prager and Greg Hurwitz and, and a bunch of other people that I can't remember off the top of my brain, but here you are with a public secular intellectual like Jordan Peterson digging super deep into the Exodus stories. And so I guess, how did you even get involved in that? Because I know a bunch of people that would have loved to have been at that table, um, but you were actually there. So so how was that and how'd you get involved? Well, I, I've known Jordan for a while. Um, he said to me one day, do you know anything about Exodus? And I just said to him, well, I wrote a book on it. <laughs> you must come, he said. I didn't know what to. <laughs> and it was a curious experience. I found often Dennis Prager, who's a good friend, he and I kept bringing the discussion back to the text because some of the other people went all over the place with their ideas. But we, we kept on saying, no, the text means this in a straightforward way. You know, as you know, I'm a great believer that Exodus is the master narrative of Western freedom. So go back to that crazy idea of unhitching our ideas from faith from the Old Testament. Exodus is the master narrative of freedom. All that, you know, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. You can't understand that without understanding Exodus and all that it teaches in a very profound way about freedom, which is the key to where America is today. I think that that's absolutely true. And one of the interesting things is if you if you listen, it is very apparent that you and Dennis particularly were trying to get it. Okay, let's not go too far out in the ethereal. Let's kind of bring it back. One thing that I will also mention is if they gave an award at the end of the Exodus seminar for the person interrupted the most, it was you. And that's why I'm enjoying this interview so much is because I just get to shut up and I get to just let you say all these smart things off the top of your head. And that's kind of Jordan Peterson's style a little bit is especially if you listen to his interviews, he interrupts constantly because he just has a thought and he has to get it out. But did you notice that? Because halfway through the second uh, video that you were on, I was like, goodness gracious, could somebody let Oz talk, please? <laughs> no, I mean, it was always a question of when to chip in and when not to chip in because, you know, it's tiresome if you say too much. But it's equally crazy if you let things roll in directions that are a long way off the mark. I wasn't aware that I was interrupting or or not. Okay, well, maybe that's just my perception, but I was I was ready to fight for you, Oz. I was going to be like, all right, everybody, we're going to mute your mics for two minutes so Oz can get his point out. And before we leave the, the Exodus seminar, obviously in the Christian world, there's a lot of people, pastors included, that are just completely enamored with Jordan Peterson. I find his work to be deeply deeply satisfying 
and enthralling. And 12 Rules for Life is just one of those books that will just stand the test of time, in my opinion. Um, I actually got to spend a little bit of time with him earlier this year, whenever he came through my state to do a talk in Tulsa and, you know, got connected with him. I, I brought him a verse by verse reference Bible with his name on it because, you know, he'll make those comments about the Bible being the most hyperlinked book in all of history. And as I've heard people point out before, you can't spend that much time in the Bible without letting it shape you. Uh, it, it's a very, very interesting thing. But for all intents and purposes, Jordan Peterson has not stuck his flag in the ground and said, yes, I believe in God. And yes, I put in my faith in Christ and I've repented of my sins. And I know Christians kind of, you know, they want a cool guy on their team. Everybody wants, you know, Joe Rogan to become a Christian and Kanye West to become a Republican. And they want all this stuff so they can have cool guys on their team. But Jordan Peterson is that big one that people are just so hopeful that he comes to full-throated faith in Christ and, and, you know, preaches that to the world. What is your read on being his friend and spending so much time with him in terms of where he's at in his faith journey? Well, there's a danger in the way people are putting that to you, because that means that their faith is not in Jesus and the truth of faith. Their faith would be more true if Jordan were to affirm it. Now, right. Jordan's a good friend of mine. He's a dear guy. He's intensely honest, and he is on a journey. His wife has come to faith. His daughter has come to faith, and I hope he will too. But I'd let him, I would pray for him, push him along, help him, encourage him. But he's on a journey. So he would be like the soul become Paul, you know, if uh, he did come to faith. But our faith would be no more true if Jordan affirmed it, and no less true if he didn't. You know, if it's true, it'd be true if no one believed it. If it was not true, it'd be true of everyone. It would be false if everyone believed in it. But pray for him as a dear man. And you know, there's a wonderful conference coming up called the Alliance for Republic Responsible Citizenship. He's going to lead that along with Baroness Stroud in London. And we hope it'll be a good counter to Davos and the whole WEA approach. What's interesting about that is the... The, the speech that he did in Tulsa, that was the first time by his own admission that he spoke at length about that because he had spoke about it briefly on the Joe Rogan experience just before that. But he actually went into way more detail whenever he was in front of us and he just kind of did that as a detour of his speech. So I felt like I was, you know, a fly on the wall getting to, to hear this. And so I have high hopes for that group as well. Um, as, as we wind to a close, I haven't asked you a specific question about one of your books. And so I feel like I need to do that because I did read your latest book uh, from IVP and it's uh, Signals of Transcendence. So I really appreciate uh, the folks over there for sending it my way. So, well, actually, I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one's the easy one. So you write about Malcolm Muggeridge and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and Tolstoy and these different folks, but you talk about how each one of them had a signal of transcendence, hence the name of the book. So briefly, what is a signal of transcendence, and then we'll, we'll get into a specific example here in a sec. Well, I got the term from Peter Berger, but they are profound experiences which do two things. First, they puncture whatever people believed up till that point. Many of them, for example, C.S. Lewis, were convinced atheists, but they, their atheism is punctured by whatever the experience is. And secondly, they point to something which, if true, would make all the difference. So the signals don't convince people of faith. They don't become believers. But they constitute the trigger that makes them search. They become seekers. 
So they puncture what they used to believe and point to something else and people become seekers. And I love how you ended every chapter with, you know, he who has ears, let him hear. Like, obviously, we, we we see that from the words of Jesus. There was a lot of subtlety in the book, but obviously you've been very explicit about your faith before. So people shouldn't get too wrapped around the axle on that. But I want to read to you my favorite quote from the book, and it's from the G.K. Chesterton chapter. Chesterton's story, again, highlights the point that in the quest for meaning, the important divide is not between believers and unbelievers or between people of faith and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, as it is often put today. The real divide is between those who care enough to ask questions and think seriously about life and those who are indifferent. Again, it's my favorite quote from the book, Oz, because I feel like that encapsulates where we are at at this exact moment in 2023. There are those that are willing to question things and think about them deeply. And then there are those that just want to play video games, fantasy football and watch porn and just kind of let you let the world pass them by. So why, why did you make that statement? I don't even know if you knew it was that. I feel like that was Thor's hammer whenever I read it. I don't even know if you thought about that as you were writing it, but do you feel like that does encapsulate the time we're in? Absolutely. Now, on the one hand, you have a great statement like Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. So people who don't think enough or even care enough to ask questions about what life means, you know, they're leading lives that are not worth living. And that includes many people in the academic world, too. And that's absolutely tragic. But another way of putting it is, it is questions taken seriously that constitute the searcher. And that's, that's step one of a search, a time for questions. Something erupts in my life in some way, might be bad, like a suffering, might be good, like C.S. Lewis's surprised by joy. But whatever it is, questions spur a search. And that's the difference between the indifferent and the person who's really studying and wants an examined life. But that's the big challenge to get people to think. We have so much to live with. You know, I, I use the phrase of the psychologist, weapons of mass distraction. Hmm. You, you think of the so-called screenagers, you know, teenagers dependent on their triple screen gauging, uh, gazing. They don't need to think about the meaning of life. You just live from one moment to the next, absorbed by technology. And that's tragic. I think it's absolutely tragic. Um, it's one thing that I try to check on myself to where it's like, hey, I kind of need this technology to do what I do to get the word out and my philosophy out on manhood, men's ministry, the gospel and, and whatnot. So uh, that's always a good reminder. Last question of the day, but it's a two-parter because I'm mushing these things in because I need you to get on to the rest of your day being all smart and stuff. I want to know what you're working on now. So uh, you, you obviously do a lot of different things and you do a lot of writing. And with that, since you've written and or edited, you know, a few dozen books at this point, if you had to wipe away your entire catalog of everything you've ever written and you could leave one book for everyone in humanity, and that is going to represent Oz Guinness and your life's work, what would it be? So what are you working on now? Well, you know, give us a peek behind the oh. curtain and give us the one book. God, let me take the second first. Okay. I'm it's not the only book that I love, but my bestseller by a long way is The Call. Yeah. And I think it's a book that touches the heart of faith because from Abraham through the Old Testament to our Lord, follow me, follow me, 
down through the way calling has shaped history, reformation, and so on. There's nothing like calling for getting to the depth of faith and importantly, the depth of purpose and meaning in life. So that's by far my bestseller. And in that sense, I understand why. Now I've got other books that I love equally as much, but that would be the one. What I'm working on at the moment, you know, I've written books on American crisis and freedom and so on. I'm working on a book on the crisis of the West. Mm. We are at what's called a civilizational moment. If you think all the great civilizations of history are either in history books or in ruins or in museums. Why? Whatever the inspiration by which they rose, a moment came when they lost touch with the inspiration. And when that happens, a civilizational moment, there are only three broad options. You renew the inspiration, you replace it with something equally adequate, or you decline. Now, the inspiration of the Western civilizations, undoubtedly, the Christian faith, rooted in Judaism, the Bible. The intelligentsia of the West has rejected that almost universally today. But now the assumed replacement, secularism from the Enlightenment, has equally failed. And we have what I call the red wave, the rainbow wave and the black wave, in other words, radical Marxism, the sexual revolution, and radical Islamism, that are all not only against the Christian faith, they're against the West itself. So Western civilization is at this crucial civilizational moment. But faith is the key to the outcome. Now, many Christians are just discouraged. They don't have a belief and a hope that there can be a better story and an awakening and a renewal. And that's what I want to get across. So when can we expect to see this thing? You say you're working on it, but I I'm already know. excited. Unfortunately, my previous publisher turned it down. Intervarsity turned it down. So I'm going to have to scout around for other publishers. Okay. I have a sneaking suspicion that you're going to find a landing spot for that. But Oz, we have weaved in and out of a bunch of different subject matters on this podcast. I really appreciate your latitude and letting us go to all these different places. But is there anything else you want to get off your chest before we get you out of here? No, I don't think so, Kyle. I've enjoyed it immensely. I love the cut and thrust. All right. Oz Guinness, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. My privilege. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Oz Guinness. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is a link to Oz's website. So if you want to get any information on his books or any of his speaking engagements or stuff like that, you can check it out there. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perfect. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Facedown Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.